This is The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, a podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. The year 1971. Two student bodies merge in Alexandria, Virginia, in the newly constructed T.C. Williams High School. One school predominantly black, the other white. Separately, they were successful football programs. Together, they were Titans. This is how the story plays out on the big screen in the classic football movie, Remember the Titans. In reality, it went down a little differently. For many people, Remember the Titans is the pinnacle of football movies. It's routinely cited as one of the best sports movies of all time. Kind of remarkable considering the director, Boaz Yakin, never really liked or knew much about football. It's not to say the New York native didn't like sports at all. He just never connected with America's most popular sport. So why was someone who didn't love football and whose only credits up until this time were fresh and a price above rubies seen by the great Jerry Bruckheimer as the right man for this job? Here's Boaz. When Remember the Titans got made, sports movies were seen as a financial bet. It was not like what happened after Titans, where suddenly every year you had to have two movies kind of like that, you know? Up until then, it was much rarer. And in fact, Disney was being very tight-fisted with the budget on Titans. And so all the big directors that Jerry liked to work with passed on. So Jerry was down to looking for people who had come from the independent film world and so on. Ultimately, I guess I, I talked as good a game as anybody at the time about it. Um, and uh, I actually, one of the things that got me the job was the script, which had all the elements there, but was extremely long. It would literally have stuff in it like, you know, a football game ensues, the Titans win as one sentence. And the script's like 135 pages long. And you're like, a football game ensues and Titans win. And so I actually edited the script by about 30 pages over two days and came in with the new draft and said, look, this isn't finished by any means, but this is a lot more what you could do with this movie in a realistic way. And Jerry hired me after he saw that I did that. Boaz wasn't the only person in the crew who didn't have an intimate knowledge of football. The film's director of photography, Philippe Rousselot, didn't know anything about football either. And you can understand why, in the early days of the film's production, this pairing made Disney very nervous. They were like, holy shit, these two guys are going to make this movie. Um, but, you know, that that's what we were doing. And honestly, in football, you know, it's an action scene, right? Like... Either you hand the ball to someone and they hit him or you throw the ball to someone and they hit him. Like, it's really not that complicated. If you've seen the film, you know how great the football scenes look. And I've said this about every great sports movie. If it's going to be good, you have to really believe what you're seeing on the field. And this movie hit it. You feel the hits, you see the emotion. All this made possible by one specific directorial decision. You know, up until then, there was a way of filming football and often sport where it was important for like, they always felt it was important for the audience to know what was going on in the game, so to speak, right? And there's a way of filming that that's very much like the TV portrayal of how you film a football game where you see the field, you see where everybody is on the field, you sort of set up. And I was like, I never want a high angle of the field where you see the grass, I never want you to see the grass in this movie. I always want you to feel like you're watching a bunch of warriors hitting each other. And, you know, I want you to understand where you are in the game a bit. 
but it's not at all important for me for this to feel like sport at all. And so if you watch the film, you'll realize that maybe there's two shots in the whole movie where you actually see the field from slightly high up. Everything else is ground level. Everything else is as if you're inside the players dealing with their emotions and how they're doing things. Um, so as a director, you can bring a perspective to something that isn't necessarily your area of expertise and, and so on. And honestly, I think sometimes you do something more interesting with it than people to whom that's their specialty. It's a phenomenon known as the outsider advantage, which suggests that people from outside traditional systems often find creative, innovative solutions. Remember, the Titans needed the fresh eyes of outsider Boaz Yakin to step away from the norm and successfully capture the tension and the emotion of these games. We see this from one of the first practice sessions that the team has. During this sequence, one of the defensive linemen, Ray Buds, purposely fails to put on a block. The team's captain, Gary Bertier, immediately blows him up, knowing that Ray isn't playing for the team. The emotion of this new team dynamic is now on full display. It's a movie about people overcoming their hostilities and moving to a more positive place. And that's what I connected to as a filmmaker. So even though I wasn't a football person or anything, when I read the original script and it brought a tear to my eye at the end and I felt something positive in it, I went, okay, I know how to get into that. That's my way in. I understand what I'm doing. And the football and all that is just basically a metaphor for what we're trying to get at here emotionally. And that's exactly what Boaz accomplished. This film's emotional journey is perhaps the biggest reason why it's been so successful since the very moment it hit the theaters. In its opening weekend, which, oh, by the way, went head-to-head -head with the 2000 Sydney Olympics, it made almost $21 million and became the number one ranked film. Remember, the Titans would stay inside the top 10 for another seven weeks, which helped it gross roughly $115 million in the U.S. and $137 million worldwide. This made it the fourth highest grossing football movie of all time, behind The Blind Side, The Waterboy, and the remake of The Longest Yard. This movie resonated with people, but how accurate was it to the real-life story of that 71 T.C. Williams high school team? Here's Boaz. As we proceeded to make the movie, I honestly adjusted and changed things based on the dramatic needs of the story. So it was, as they say, inspired by a true story, but I would never say that it is accurate in the sense that things happen in a very different way very often. So, yeah, you know, it, it depended. For, for me, I mean, look, also it was a story about racism in the South in the 70s. And it was a Disney movie that needed to be rated PG, which was their agenda, which I found extremely difficult to manage. And, and one of my biggest challenges was how, how do you make a movie that takes race racism and all that type of thing seriously, but also puts it in a pill that kids can swallow. And trying to make something that respected the weight of what I was working on while at the same time, you know, not using the N-word, et cetera, and so forth, it, it was a tricky balancing act. And I, I think we succeeded to some degree. To, but, but that also, like, in real life, the coaches smoke, chain smoke. And Disney was like, no smoking, you know, and all the kids were on pot all the time, you know, smoking pot. None of that in the movie. So, so, so you had to sort of figure out how to use things that you felt were 
true to the spirit of what it was, while at the same time shifting it for the needs of that particular project. One of the biggest elements of the real story that the movie changed was the fact that T.C. Williams High School was not consolidated with one other school, but two, George Washington High School and Francis C. Hammond High School. And at the time of consolidation in 1971, both T.C. Williams and George Washington were already integrated. So it wasn't 100% like, oh, two schools that were completely separate. But if you talk to the people from that period and some of the people I spoke to, the racism, the anxiety about race and all that was very much there. The racial elements all existed, but played out very differently and decidedly less Hollywood. For instance, there was no one protesting outside of the school once it was decided they would be consolidated. The integration more of a football issue than anything else. Here's Tony Rehagen, a journalist who last year penned an article on the movie called 50 Years Later. The team and its supporters reveal a real story of Remember the Titans. They had a harder time kind of having rival, former rivals integrate together uh, as opposed to just strictly along racial boundaries. But those were present as well. You can imagine that from a competitive perspective. I mean, it's almost, it's almost, <laughs> I wouldn't even say cheating, but like it's, it's basically really, you can see how the football boosters would be all over something like this. Like, let's just combine all our upperclassmen in one school and make the football team out of that. And of course, all three of the high schools had coaching staffs. They all had people that they wanted to, to, to coach, just like all the players had to compete against three other people at their position that were expecting to start when they came together. We see this in the film with Coach Yost, played by Will Patton. We're introduced to him as one of the greatest high school football coaches in Virginia history. A man who has the ultimate respect, not just from his team, but the entire community. When the announcement is made that the school is being integrated, he struggles with the idea of handing the reins over to someone he doesn't feel is as qualified as he is. At one point, Coach Yost even thinks about leaving to go coach somewhere else. Part of this because of his prejudice, but most of it because of his ego. So, yeah, it was it was very much just something that, again, they, it was kind of bridging the gap between those schools uh, and trying to, to coexist. But, yeah, uh, Coach Boone was was going to run, run the run the station no matter what. Coach Boone, played brilliantly by two time Academy Award winner Denzel Washington, is the very character who takes the story from being good to being great. He's the heart of it all. The real-life Coach Boone began his coaching journey in 1958 at Luther H. Foster High School in Blackstone, Virginia. In 1961, he became the head coach of E.J. Hayes High School in Williamstown, North Carolina, where his football teams had 99 wins and just eight losses in his nine years. Then, in 69, Boone was hired as an assistant coach at T.C. Williams High School. Now remember, this is two years before we see him arrive at the school in the movie, which means that when he got hired to become the head coach in 71, he was already well-known to most of the players. Once again, the way he was portrayed in the film, not exactly accurate to the real Coach Boone. I didn't know the guy. <laughs> like, I spent a few days with him over one weekend. I talked to him. I, you know, I, but like, I, I have no idea. Um, I mean, Denzel was playing Denzel. You know, I mean, basically, and kind of allowing himself to be inspired by this guy and, and, and will the same. Here's Tony. In the movie, they portray like the, the two a days and the heat and the, and the kind of the running through the training camp. But again, they, they, they kind of blurred over the method behind that madness. Um, that really, again, wasn't as much about integrating the team as it was weeding out the players that weren't going to make it. Like that, that was a big thing about this team is that, again, it's the, it's the upperclassmen from three 
huge high schools in the city that it had normally fielded their own football teams. And so you had, you know, you had three nose tackles that expected to start, you know, you had eight senior wide receivers that all expected to get their catches. And so Boone took it upon himself to kind of run, kind of run it out of them and be like, you know, only the best are going to survive. And so kind of put them through the ringer of these two a days and of these uh, practices to try to, to weed out the crowd. And there was a lot of weeding to be done which meant that a lot of very good football players would fail to make the final team, which of course meant that those who did make the team were some of the most talented players in the entire state. Gary Bertier, played by Ryan Hurst, was a star at Hammond High School before the merger. In fact, many people involved in that 71 Titans team have noted that while the film did justice to how important Bertier was as a leader, it didn't do justice to how good he was as a player or any of the T.C. Williams stars for that matter this team was just dominant on both sides of the ball. As you can imagine, it's, it's the super team out of, out of, you know, one of the biggest cities in the state. And so, I mean, like nine of their 13 wins were shutouts. You know, they, they went undefeated. They outscored opponents 265 to 31. You know, they weren't just playing strictly white opponents. They, they, all these other schools have been integrated as well, which is an interesting uh, part of the story as well. So it wasn't, it wasn't the black on white, you know, situation that, that uh, it was portrayed in the movie. Um, and then the, that Andrew Lewis game, I mean, basically, it was, you know, the dramatic victory over Marshall, which was the, you know, portrayed as the, the ultimate battle in the movie, happened earlier in the season. In fact, that clash against Marshall was the fifth game of the season. The Titans won that one 21-16. It was the closest one to them, but it wasn't an actual close game. The actual championship game was to Andrew Lewis, and they won, you know, 27 to nothing and held them to negative five yards. So, yeah, it was just a dominant team. So you can see why the filmmakers had to change things up a little bit. If they portrayed the Titans as dominant as they were in real life, there'd be no conflict. And without conflict, there's no story. The same can be said for why the filmmakers changed the fact that Gary Bertier got injured after the championship game rather than before, which was the case in the movie. Or why they dangled the carrot of a Hall of Fame induction in front of Coach Yost and his family, despite the fact that there was no Virginia High School Hall of Fame in 1971. The more conflict the story has, the better, and the more it will resonate. Another important change that the film made was in the scene where a brick gets thrown through Coach Boone's window, while the daughter of Coach Yost, played by Hayden Panettiere, is overwatching tape. In reality, it wasn't a brick. It was actually a toilet. In hindsight, it's quite obvious why the filmmakers chose to change up this incredibly dramatic and frightening scene. You know, someone having dinner in a toilet comes in through the window could actually be pretty funny. This scene is integral to making Coach Yost understand what Coach Boone and his family have had to endure their entire lives. Despite all of these changes, the real-life members of that 71 team were generally very positive about their portrayal in the film. Here's Boaz. The movie was a very, very positive, upbeat and glorifying perspective on what had happened then. So I don't think many people had many problems with it because it made everybody look better than they were in real life. I mean, as a disnified, heroic version of their lives. So, uh, you know, people don't tend to get too upset about that kind of thing. Tony Rehagen spoke to a number of these players for his 2021 article they all kind of fall along the same lines as like the message is right. So that the, 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 the story is good. The message is right. We won't let the facts get in the way of a good, of a good story. You know, that old, that old uh, saying. So a lot of them were very, very okay with it um, and very accepting of it. 
And that's the great thing about Remember the Titans. Pretty much all of the players are portrayed in a positive light. They learn to accept one another despite their differences and go on to have success on the football field while doing so. It's the very reason this film has become synonymous with breaking boundaries and striving towards equality. My then wife and I were canvassing for Obama during the first election when he was running against McCain. And we were canvassing in Nevada, spent like three or four days there trying to get people and go and vote and everything. And on election night, we were exhausted. We were back in the hotel room. We didn't know what was going to happen. But then it, it became clear Obama won, right? And we, had, we were so emotional. We were holding hands. And on the TV was this huge rally in Chicago that Obama came and spoke at. And before he came onto the stage, they started blasting the Remember the Titans theme. And I was just like, I don't believe it. Like, that's the Obama theme music now is the Remember the Titans theme music. And I called up Trevor literally as soon as that speech was over. I was like, Trev, did you hear? He's referring to Trevor Rabin, who orchestrated the score. He goes, yeah, I heard. Do I get paid for this? Like, that was the first thing he thought. But that was a moment where I really felt a sense of having done something that resonated in a way that made me proud of it. For me, this movie was another one of those movies that I knew nothing about the subject matter when I went in and learned about it by watching the film. Unlike other movies where I was very familiar with the subject matter. This could have been a movie that was a work of fiction and I would have walked out feeling the same exact way. The fact that it was based on a true story just made it that much better. I mean, I can quote Denzel Washington a number of times from this film. I often say in my in my own house, I don't scratch my head unless it itches and I don't dance unless I hear some music. I will not be intimidated. I use that all the time with my kids. They have no idea what it means. I will also say that if you're not going to accept the fact that it's going to be a little disnified, you're going to walk out maybe not appreciating what the underlying message was, but that's really what mattered here. The two schools coming together. So again, you've heard me say it in previous podcasts, I'm a sucker for a happy ending. This one gave me another one. Last year, the film was re-released in select theaters across the United States, which tells you how loved this movie still is. Granted, much of that likely had to do with studios holding out on releasing new films because of the pandemic, but the point remains. So what does Boaz think of the film's success? It's a mixed legacy for me in the sense that at the time, it was because of the type of person I am, for better or worse, I found it very difficult to have the most successful thing I'd done be something that had nothing to do with anything I care about at all, creatively, stylistically, emotionally. Like uh, some Disney football movie is literally like a sellout move that I like in a million years would not have wanted to do until I just had to be realistic at that moment in my life. You know, I think for me as a, as an artist, it's like, Maybe it's counterintuitive, but when I make movies that are more personal, on some level, I don't care as much whether they do well or not, because that wasn't necessarily the intention. And even if the attacks from critics or whatever are more personally directed at you, at least you're like, yeah, but that's what I wanted to do. Whereas when you're making a movie like Remember the Titans, where like its sole purpose is to be successful and connect in that way, if it doesn't, you feel like you really f***ed up, you know? Years after Remember the Titans came out, Boaz had a test screening for his 2003 comedy, Uptown Girls, starring Brittany Murphy, Dakota Fanning, and Heather Locklear. 
you know, at the end of the test screenings, they always ask, like, do you think it was a, to the audience? These are the worst experiences for a director ever. You think this is a good movie, a great movie, a really great movie? And the person would say, well, anyway, so at the end of the movie, they were interviewing the, the chosen audience, whatever you call them, the focus group. And they asked this one young lady, they were like, would you say this is a good movie and, or a great movie? She said, I think it's a good movie. And, and she was, they were like, well, what would you consider a great movie? And she was like, well, remember the Titans? And I was just like, oh, this is, this is going to be the story of the rest of my life, probably. Like, you know, <laughs> like, great. But, um, but then you also have to recognize it, I'm proud of the fact that I made something that resonates and that people really like, you know. Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen. I'll say this. It's a movie. It's not a documentary. So uh, me looking at Coach Carter, I take account for that. Just like in the movie, like how someone's brother got killed. My brother literally got murdered when I was 10 years old. Uh, my girlfriend got pregnant in high school, just like someone in the movie got pregnant. It's like they took some pieces from your life, my life, and then just put them both in that character. The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.